0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable & Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to Surety Cleans professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at uh, Wright, Constable, and Skiing in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm flying solo today. It's just me, myself, and I. As always, I'd like to uh, open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. We ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of our prior 58 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere from from any one of our multiple platforms uh, on Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. So far today, we've had over 4,505 downloads of our podcast since we started podcasting. As always, we've uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today we'll be talking about issues in commercial claims. We'll discuss um, issues relating to limitations issues relating to interpleader actions and um, issues relating to letters of credit, uh, which is, of course, a popular form of collateral uh, for commercial surety bonds. So first, let's uh, start by looking at issues with the uh, limitations. So let's say you've got a, a claim that has come in uh, against the bond and you want to determine whether the claim is timely or you might have a, a potential salvage uh, claim and you want to figure out what the limitations period is on asserting that claim. In these scenarios and others, you'll need to determine what the applicable limitations period is in the applicable jurisdiction. Determining what limitations applies can be tricky. When you are trying to determine the applicable limitations period, there are three general places you'll need to look. First, check to see if there's a limitations period in any authorizing statute for the bond or claim. Uh, that's at issue. Second, check the uh, language of the bond or contract itself for any contractual limitations provisions. And third, check the general statute of limitations provisions in the state code if you haven't found anything in the first two places. Finally, keep in mind that uh, if, if the, a bankruptcy occurs, that there's a an additional two-year stay, if you will, uh, regarding limitations um, from, the, from the debtors. So, That's sort of a wild card. First, let's look at the the first place to look for for the limitations period uh, in the authorizing statute if there is one. Uh, For example, if a a state statutory scheme requires the posting of a bond to secure the issuance of a permit or a contractor's license or to secure a warranty or other type of service, then you need to check that statute to determine if there's a limitations period uh, applicable to claims against the bond in that statute. Such uh, specific limitations periods will control over any other more general limitations period periods that might exist elsewhere in the law and that would would otherwise apply to a bond. And that's because of a general rule of statutory construction that the more specific statute will control over the more general statute. However, many times uh, these, these statutes that authorize or require a particular commercial bond may not have a limitations period. so. If there is no authorizing statute then you need to review uh, the general statute limitations provisions of the jurisdiction some states have uh, specific limitations periods for claims against bonds so for example uh, in maryland there's a limitation statute that specifically applies to claims against bonds and states that the uh, bond claim has to be filed within 12 years Uh, if there's no statute applicable uh, specifically to bonds keep in mind that Bonds are generally considered to be a written agreement or a written contract, and so the particular state's limitation period for those types of documents may apply. In some jurisdictions, there may be a a limitation period for what's known as a quote-unquote specialty. In a common law, bonds were considered to be a specialty. So if there's a limitations provision in a particular jurisdiction relating to specialties, then that might apply to a bond claim. When you're dealing with state statute of limitations, sometimes it can get pretty tricky. So for example, I handled a case uh, where a claim was being made by a county against a surety on a permit bond. There were no limitations provisions in the authorizing county code or in the bond itself dealing with limitations. So I was looking at the general limitations provisions of the state of Maryland. In Maryland, there's a general statute of limitations applicable to breach of contract actions, which is three years, A bond is considered in Maryland to be a contract, so that provision might apply. However, as I noted a moment ago, in Maryland there's a a specific statute that provides limitations of 12 years on claims against bonds, so that might be the provision you would look to based on the specific controlling the general rule that I mentioned. But the permit bond in question was also a forfeiture bond because the county could make demand on the bond even if it had no damages once the permit provisions were violated by the principal. In addition, the county code referred to the bond as a forfeiture obligation. Maryland has a specific statute limitation for 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 forfeiture claims, which is one year. The provision provides that a, quote, prosecution or suit or a fine penalty or forfeiture shall be instituted within one year after the offense was committed. I argued in that case that the forfeiture limitations period applied to the county's claim and that the principal's violation of the grading laws in that case was an offense under the statute and further because the forfeiture statute is more specific than the general claim against the bond statute that the one-year forfeiture limitations uh, should apply. And in that case, the, 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 the county had waited, I don't know, six or seven years before they uh, before they asserted their claim. So, so that ended up being resolved uh, favorably for the surety. Another example of how convoluted analysis of, of what limitations provisions applies could be found in Arizona. Uh, for, th- for this discussion, let's assume we, we've got a claim against a utility bond. The bond secures payment for utility services like electric, water, gas, etc. and uh, states that if the principal fails to pay for those services, the surety will be obligated to pay. Under Arizona law, there's a three-year limitations period for claims on open accounts. Arguably, the bonded agreement between the principal and the utility company is an open account. However, under Arizona law, the statute of limitations applicable to the underlying debt is not necessarily applicable to the guarantee of the debt, and that's true in, in other states as well. The Arizona courts have held that a guarantee contract is a separate contract pursuant to which the guarantor warrants that the principal shall perform rather than agreeing to perform jointly with the principal, and such guarantee contract is separately enforceable and independent of the obligation of the principal. Accordingly, Arizona courts have applied a 6-year statute of limitations to claims against bonds as opposed to going with the underlying limitations period. However, Arizona courts have also recognized that guarantees are not automatically subject to the limitations period for contracts and that A determination must be made on a case-by-case basis according to the terms of the guarantee and the nature of the underlying obligation. So right there, you're you're just looking for what the limitations period is, and now you have a situation where you have to deal on a case-by-case basis and try to figure it out if there's been any prior case law dealing with the type of bond you have. Uh, Moreover, although a a utility bond is a written agreement, the six-year statute of limitations for contract in writing under Arizona law, may not apply because Arizona makes a distinction between contracts executed in the state uh, for which the six-year period applies and contracts executed outside the state of Arizona, which are subject to a four-year limitations period. So these examples, the the, the county forfeiture bond and, and the way Arizona uh, parses out their limitations provisions, uh, you know, the analysis of what limitations provisions would apply can be complicated by the wide variety of limitations period under various state laws, the nature of the obligations at issue, and even the facts and circumstances of how or where the obligation was created. Another thing to consider when you're looking at limitations periods is the issue of uh, of whether the bond is under seal. Sealing a document is an ancient practice that originally involved uh, pressing a person's seal or family crest into hot wax on the document. When a document is executed under seal, it establishes that the contract was made for consideration, and by applying a seal thereto, the signer is confirming the consideration and further authenticating his or her intent to carry out the contract. Today, a seal can take many forms. It can be in the form of a stamp or an impression, a scroll, or even just the word seal or L period, S period after the person's signature. The bond uh, or contract can also recite that the parties intend to be bound, you know, hereby set their hands in the seal, et cetera. Uh, in some cases, uh, in some states, the effect of sealing the document has been abolished, but in other states, it's still alive and well. One effect of sealing the document is that it may extend the limitations period. For example, in Maryland, as I noted a moment ago, the general period of limitations on a written contract is three years, but if the contract is under seal, the limitations period becomes 12 years. Uh, I don't know why Maryland got stuck on 12 years, but uh, they, they throw that around like it's you know nothing. And I, I, you can't, most people don't even have cards at 12 years old, you know. But anyway, so the and Maryland's not alone. There are other states that that have that have, uh, have a, this provision relating to sealed documents as well. So check for a seal on the bond or other instrument that you're dealing with, and then check to see if there's a, a separate limitations provision for documents under seal. Uh, Next, let's talk about uh, contractual limitations periods. So many bond forms contain a provision with a limitations period within which a claim on the bond must be made. These are referred to as a contractual limitations provision. The vast majority of jurisdictions generally hold that contractual limitation periods are enforceable. However, there may be a few restrictions on the general rule. Most states hold that contractual limitations will be upheld, but only if they are reasonable and the provision is clearly set forth in the agreement. As one court explained, the contractual limitations period must be reasonable under the circumstances of the particular case and sufficient to allow a plaintiff to file a claim after the alleged damage has been ascertained. Whether a contract limitations period is reasonable may be determined by considering the provisions of the contract and the circumstances of its performance and enforcement. So I had a case in the District of Columbia where I obtained summary judgment on behalf of the surety based on a one-year contractual limitations provision in the bond. The District of Columbia enforces contractual limitations provisions and we argued that the provision was clearly reasonable in our case because it was the same one-year period as the limitations provision under the Miller Act and the Little Miller Act. If a a one-year limitations period was reasonable for purposes of public policy in the Miller Act, It clearly is reasonable in the bond. On appeal, the D.C. appellate court agreed. In some cases, uh, a contractual limitation period may not be enforceable if the court determines that the limitation period violates public policy, such as a contractual limitation on important statutory or constitutional right. Finally, a contractual limitation period may be prohibited by statute. For example, in Maryland, the Maryland Code provides Limitations periods in an insurance policy or surety bond, if the limitations period is shorter than the statutory limitation period, um, that its uh, void is against public policy. Of course, in Maryland, we've got that 12-year limitations period, so hard to imagine that anybody's going to put, you know, uh, a provision that's um, that's longer than the 12 years, so you're always going to have a period that's shorter, and it'll be barred by the Maryland law. Similarly, in, in Florida, the Florida Code provides that any provision in a contract setting a period of limitations on an action arising out of a contract for less than that provided by the applicable statute is void. So you need to be careful when you're dealing with contractual limitations periods and determine uh, whether such provisions are valid and, and, and in the applicable jurisdiction and whether such provisions are reasonable. Now, one uh, final thing to talk about in limitations um, is when limitations does not apply. So, what about a situation uh, where they don't apply? It's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. You've got to be aware of it. Uh, there are several, several states that still apply the doctrine of nullum tempus occurrit regi. Uh, so, the question is, which, which in English means that time does not run against the king. So, the question is, you know, who is making the claim on the bond? Pursuant to this doctrine, uh, a limitations period will not prevent a governmental body from bringing a claim against the bond after the limitations period has expired. So the theory that that no time runs against the sovereign is generally followed in regard to ordinary statutes and limitations unless the state is expressly or by necessary implication included within the operation of the statute. so so, for example, if you've got a a, a bond for a taxing authority, something like that, and there's a limitation provision in that uh, in that uh, code section that requires the bond. Well, obviously the state is the taxing authority and so and so therefore they're going to be bound by that limitation provision. This thing, this question about, you know, the sovereign and who is the sovereign gets a little murky when you start talking about counties versus states or municipalities versus counties or states. And and different states have different rules for how they treat those lower level governmental entities and whether they apply uh, the full nullum tempest Doctrine or not. Okay, so that was limitations, issues and limitations. It can get pretty tricky. Next, we're going to talk about uh, interpleader actions. So sometimes in commercial claims world, a a situation will arise where there are more claims against the bond than there there is penal sum in the bond to cover such claims. what do you do do in that situation? In some states, case law has held that if a surety is aware that the amount of claims is likely to exceed the penal sum of the bond, and the surety nevertheless pays claims as they come in, uh, leaving later claims with nothing, the surety can be held liable for claims in excess of the penal sum of the bond. So there are various states um, and decisions out there that have held that. So to avoid such a result, the federal courts and, and most state courts have, have enacted some form of interpleader cause of action. In this discussion, we'll just we'll just focus on the federal interpleader because it has broader application and more uniformity uh, in, in comparison to the uh, various state statutes, which do not have uniformity. So first, uh, what is an interpleader? The nature and purpose of an interpleader action is to protect the stakeholder from having to defend against multiple lawsuits and to safeguard the stakeholder from the risks of multiple liability or inconsistent obligations. An inter- interpleader action is a procedural device used to resolve conflicting claims over money or property. In the surety industry, of course, it's the penal sum of the bond. The penal sum of the bond is, quote, unquote, the stake and uh, at issue, and the, quote, unquote, stakeholder is the surety. So essentially, an interpleader action permits the surety who's holding the money or property to deposit the funds in the court and let the court decide who is is entitled to it and how much each person or entity should get. In addition to protecting the stakeholder, the interpleader action also, of course, protects multiple claimants to the fund when those claims exceed the total amount of the fund because the court will distribute the limited funds equitably among the claimants to ensure that the fund is not prematurely depleted. So that all claimants uh, are at least partially compensated so in federal court there are two ways uh, to initiate an interpleader action either by federal rule of civil procedure uh, or by federal statute a rule interpleader action as it's called is permitted under the federal rule of civil procedure 22 but rule interpleader does not give rise to jurisdiction in federal court without another independent basis, such as a federal question or diversity of of citizenship. One attribute uh, attribute of rule interpleader is that it does not require a deposit of the stake into the court. So if you pursue a rule interpleader in the surety context, you don't have to write a a check for the entire amount of the penal sum right right in the beginning of litigation. You can hold on to it until the end. Statutory interpleader is, is on the other hand, is based on the Federal Interpleader Act. And unlike Rule Interpleader, it expressly provides jurisdiction in federal court, as well as providing certain remedies that flow directly to the stakeholder that are not afforded in uh, Rule Interpleader. Statutory Interpleader also um, does require that the deposit of the stake with the court be made at the beginning of the action. So I wanna do a a little overview of of federal statutory Interpleader actions. and focus on some of the, the specific attributes. So the first is, is the attribute of, of, of federal statutory interpleader is the concept of minimum diversity. So ordinarily, in order to obtain a federal subject matter jurisdiction, you would need to have a federal question jurisdiction or diversity. Federal question would be something like the Miller Act. That's a federal act that provides uh, for a cause of action in federal court. Diversity requires that the plaintiffs all be from a different state and citizens of a different state from all of the defendants, and that the amount in controversy has to exceed $75,000. So for example, if one of three plaintiffs is from Maryland and one of 10 defendants is also from Maryland, you don't meet the diversity requirement and you can't get into federal court under normal diversity. You need to have complete diversity in order to meet diversity jurisdiction in general. But now under the federal interpleader statute, the amount of the stake needs only be to be $500, so, so right there the diversity amount is reduced from $75,500, and to meet diversity in an interpleader action, all there has to be is two of the claimants have to be citizens of different states. So if the plaintiff is a citizen of Maryland and one of the 10 defendants is from Maryland, that's fine because the citizenship of the plaintiff is irrelevant uh, in, in uh, federal statutory interpleader actions As long as two of the claimants are from different jurisdictions, with different citizenships, then you meet the minimum diversity requirement for federal interpleader action. So, right there, you see the amount has been lowered and a lot of the commercial bonds, of course, are are not in uh, very large amounts. So, so the federal interpleader action um, can be can be an avenue um, in light of the fact that the Federal Interpleader Act has reduced uh, the diversity requirements. So, second attribute of uh, a federal statutory interpleader is that You can achieve nationwide jurisdiction. Ordinarily, in order to sue someone in a jurisdiction, you need to have a statute that allows you to do that, like the long-arm statute or the person has to consent to the jurisdiction or they have to have constitutionally required minimum contacts with the jurisdiction in order to obtain personal jurisdiction over that individual in a given form. But in a a federal statutory interpleader, the court is given nationwide jurisdiction over all claimants to the stake wherever they reside. 28 U.S.C. section 2361 states that a district court may issue its process for all claimants where they reside or may be found. Thus in statutory interpleaders, the the minimum contacts of the claimant with the jurisdiction are irrelevant. And this gives the, the surety maximum flexibility in instituting the action and allows the interpleader to bring all claimants and potential claimants before the same tribunal, thereby furthering the nature and purpose of interpleader actions. Finally, one of the the primary features or um, attributes of an interpleader action is the injunctive relief and discharge that a surety can obtain. So 28 U.S.C. 2361 permits the federal court, where the interpleader action has been filed, to issue an injunction. The statute provides that in any civil action of interpleader or in the nature of interpleader, the district court may enter its order restraining any claimant from instituting or prosecuting any proceeding in any state or United States court affecting the property, instrument, or obligation involved in the interpleader action. So obviously this is a nationwide injunctive power and it it really shuts down any claimant uh, trying to institute their own action or do something separate uh, they're all going to be plowed into the same interpleader action and the court can shut down their their case wherever it is Um, it applies as as the statute says to all courts federal and state it's broad and extensive and gives the court the ability to stop ongoing cases or prevent cases from being filed uh, once you've instituted the interpleader action The other thing is the the injunctive relief can be attained right away, initially in the case, without any notice or opportunity of the opposing party to be heard or to come before the court. So if you get uh, that injunctive relief, it's kind of like the automatic stay in bankruptcy. Uh, You can also, um, you know, as as I mentioned before, in addition to the injunction, you can also get a discharge. So once you've deposited the penal sum of the bond, you you can petition the court to be discharged, and you can obtain a discharge absolving you from any further liability on that bond. So, obviously, that is one of the the, the primary benefits of the interpleader action uh, for the stakeholder. The final note is that uh, many interpleader actions, um, the surety can petition to have its fees reimbursed from the fund uh, for setting up the interpleader action. Some state courts have that in their statutes, um, and, and, you know, it's discretionary with the courts. Uh, otherwise, and sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. It just depends on the facts. All right. So we've talked about uh, uh, limitations issues. We've talked about uh, interpleader issues. Now let's focus on uh, letters of credit. So letters of credit uh, have a lot of advantages as a form of collateral. Uh, when one is dealing with a letter of credit, you need to be careful in reviewing the terms. In particular, there are two main issues. The first is the draw requirements of the letter of credit, and the second is the termination or expiration provisions of the letter of credit. On the draw requirements, in order to draw on a letter of credit, the beneficiary, that would be the surety, must strictly conform to the requirements of the letter of credit. So if you have to make your draw at a particular location during a particular time, if you have to have a particular documents or make a specific representation, you have to be sure that you strictly com- comply with whatever the requirements are for making a draw on the letter of credit. The issuer uh, of the letter of credit or the bank, in most cases, their role under the letter of credit is simply ministerial. It's to pay a draw on demand and to make sure that the demand conforms. And if it does, then it has the obligation to pay. So you've got to make sure that you meet those requirements. With respect to the termination clause of the letter of credit, you have to be careful about when that termination is, and make sure that you either get the letter of credit renewed if it's not on an automatic renewal, or you get replacement collateral in place, or you draw down uh, if you can before the termination. And now let's, um, let's look at letters of credit in bankruptcy. So what happens to the surety's letter of credit in bankruptcy? What happens to the surety's rights to draw in the letter of credit? And, and what happens to the surety's rights to use the letter of credit Uh, once it gets the proceeds. Uh, So how, in in essence, how do the concepts of property of the estate and the automatic stay affect the surety's letter of credit? So let's look at three, three questions, those three questions. Is the letter of credit itself property of the debtor's estate? The answer is no. The letter of credit is a contract between the issuing bank and the surety beneficiary in which the principal or debtor has no property rights or interest. And this is pursuant to the, the, the fundamental nature or basis of letters of credit, which is this independence principle. Uh, the independence principle uh, treats that, that, that letter of credit as a separate agreement, a separate contract between the surety and the bank. And, and so therefore, uh, the, the principal, the debtor, has no rights to that contract. So now, uh, the second question is, are the proceeds of the letter of credit property of the debtor's estate? Case law says no, and the reason is because it's as I said, it's the bank's money, it's not the principal debtor's property. Third, does the automatic stay prevent the surety from drawing on the letter of credit? The answer is no. Letter of credit and its proceeds are not property of the debtor's estate, and therefore the automatic stay does not apply. And you can you can you know you can apply this uh, through throughout all the rights that the trustees or debtor in possession would have. You know, they may come looking for turnover, for example, uh, or to you know, to use the the property, uh, the the letter of credit property. None of that can be had because a letter of credit is not property of the estate. Now, practically, how should the surety proceed with respect to the letter of credit and drawing on the letter of credit during the debtor's bankruptcy case? I mean, there's a number of things you can do, right? You can you could you can just do it uh, because the case law says it's not property of the estate. Or if you're really cautious, you can go into the court and ask for a, a, a lift stay and uh, and have the right to do it that way. Um, but but we, we found that unless there's some kind of deadline or emergency, uh, it's important for the surety before it draws on the letter of credit to at least discuss that draw with the debtor and its counsel prior to taking such action. Uh, if they're going to appreciate it and it's going to smooth things over. You can... You know, you can talk about what the issues are and highlight any concerns that they have and, and maybe make the draw in a way that satisfies everybody and you don't have a, a dispute. Uh, second, when should the surety draw on the letter of credit proceeds? Obviously, you know, if the bank provides notice to the surety that it's not going to renew uh, the letter of credit after the after the bankruptcy's filed, uh, then the surety should draw fully on the letter of credit before the expiration date of the letter of credit if it can. As a result, uh, when you have such a case and you know you have a letter of credit as collateral, you should become very much aware of the expiration date and the time for the bank to provide notice. You may have to start fishing around to find out whether notice has been given because knowing who the notice goes to can be a problem. And sometimes that notice will go to underwriters or somebody else in an organization and, and you don't learn of it timely. You really have to keep track of that because... I can guarantee you that missing the date to draw on a letter of credit will not be good. Furthermore, uh, if there are claims being made post-petition against the bonds and assuming that the surety can make multiple draws under the same letter of credit, the surety should draw on the letter of credit in an amount to cover the expected bond losses plus expenses and attorney's fees. If during that time you get notice from the bank of non-renewal, then, of course, you've know you got to draw the whole thing. Finally, um, how can the surety... Uh, use what it is drawn on the letter of credit. If you draw on the letter of credit, um, you know, you have the rights under the indemnity agreement that's signed by the principal, the debtor. You have rights under the collateral agreement if one was signed. Uh, Those two agreements generally bind the debtor during the bankruptcy case, and the surety may act accordingly uh, under those documents because the proceeds that you've obtained are not property of the estate. So let's look at this concept, though, of of having said that, right, that the proceeds of the letter of credit are not property of the estate. Let's look at this concept of excess letter of credit proceeds. So what happens to excess letter of credit proceeds? So the scenario is, for whatever reason, you draw down a letter of credit. uh, You're you're holding the cash. After a while, you've got some claims, some LAE, and and other costs and expenses. So you pay those from the cash, reimburse yourself uh, for the LAE, Now you're you're sitting there, you're holding a pot of money, and you don't have any claims coming in at the moment. And you're you're sitting there and and, uh, sitting there with this big pot of money, and year after year goes by, you don't have any claims. The question is what happens to that pot of money? Who gets those funds? Are they excess proceeds? Even if a bond is canceled, of course, as we, we all know, the surety still has the potential or contingent exposure under the bonds for that period of time when the bonds were effective. The question is important because many bankruptcy courts have held that Although letters of credit are not property of the bankruptcy estate, so-called excess proceeds from a letter of credit can be considered to become property of the estate. The way the bankruptcy courts have have looked at it is they've, they've reasoned that once the letter of credit has been drawn down, the independence principle is no longer at issue, and the proceeds that are held by the beneficiary of the letter of credit become subject to the underlying relationship between the beneficiary, in this case the surety, and the principal or debtor. So the bankruptcy courts will will look to the indemnity agreement and the collateral agreement. The bankruptcy courts have defined excess proceeds as generally proceeds of a letter of credit in excess of what is owed or what the surety is legally entitled to receive or what the surety needs to satisfy the underlying obligations, i.e. the the obligations of the bonds. So if you're holding funds that the bankruptcy court believes are in excess of what you're entitled to, or what you need to secure yourself, then the court may look at those proceeds as being excess proceeds, and the debtor can seek the return of those funds. In the suretyship context, in in, in our view, because the surety continues to have the contingent or potential liability under its bonds, the funds up to the penal sum of the bonds should not be be viewed as excess proceeds. The whole purpose of the letter of credit in the first place is to, to secure the surety against potential losses that the principal cannot indemnify or reimburse. So that that purpose remains in place until the surety's liability under the bond is extinguished. The question then is, uh, that is generated, is, well, when is the surety's liability extinguished? And this will come up uh, because the bankruptcy trustee sees that pot of money and and the surety's holding it and they just can't wait to get their hands on it. So uh, they they try to come up with all kinds of ways to get at it and we end up fighting these battles. The issue of the excess proceeds really brings up the point that you need to have a... First, let's, you, know, you need to have a detailed collateral agreement, a document that clearly defines what the collateral is being held for, when that collateral is going to be released, under what terms, and to whom. Uh, you really need to have those issues addressed in a good, thorough, detailed collateral agreement before you get the collateral in the first place. And that's because the court's going to look at that document. It's going it's to say, well, are these excess proceeds? First thing it's going to do, it's going to look at the indemnity agreement and a collateral agreement to try to decide what is the surety legally entitled to under its agreements with the principal? So in the absence of a, a collateral agreement, the surety must look to other factors to determine when its contingent liability will cease. It could be that upon the release or discharge of the bond by the obligee, the surety's liability will cease. And that's true you know, in the case of a utility bond where there's only one potential claimant and that's the obligee. If the obligee releases and discharges the bond, then there's no further liability. It could also be that the liability is extinguished upon payment of the penal sum of the bond. However, uh, it might not be until the expiration of the applicable statute of limitations on a bond that the surety's liability is extinguished. That is particularly true in cases where there are third-party claimants potentially under the bond, for instance, a, a contractor's licensing bond, a motor vehicle dealer bond, mortgage broker bonds, et cetera. Under such bonds, the surety has potential exposure out there from potential claimants it's not even aware of. So the statute of limitations may be the only way to really be certain that your liability has been extinguished. Of course, as we discussed earlier, the problem is that statute of limitations vary by jurisdiction, and you've got to look at when does the claim accrue? Is it discovery or breach? What is the bond? Is it a specialty? <laughs> is it an instrument under seal? Is there no limitations? Because it's, it's, a, it's a state as the claimant. So it can, be, it can be really problematic to try to establish uh, that, that the liability has been extinguished. If the proceeds are excess and you have looked at the issue and you've convinced that your uh, contingent liability is extinguished and you've got uh, this situation now where the excess money, who gets it? Does the bank that issued the letter of credit get the money? Are they entitled to the return of the funds? Does the principal, now the debtor, get the money? Does the trustee in bankruptcy have a right to get the funds back? This is a situation where the surety may find itself in the middle of multiple parties disputing who gets the money, and so the advice uh, there is that the surety may uh, may may not want to take the risk and pay the wrong party, and so instead file an interpleader action or a declaratory judgment in order to determine uh, who gets that money. So we, we came full circle there. Uh, all right, so uh, out of time. Actually, I think I'm beyond time. Apologize for that. So let's uh, close out uh, um, before I open the line up for any questions. I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, June, 20, uh, June 14th, 2021 at 1230. And we will give a Surety case law update. So that'll be good. Those are always popular. The, the, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will be holding its annual golf outing on June 7th at the at the Bala Golf Course in Philadelphia. There's going to be a barbecue outdoor dinner and, uh, of course, uh, raffle prizes and all of that. So if you're interested in the area, come on out. That'll be fun. Uh, The uh, FSLC has published its new book titled Surety Aspects of Bankruptcy Law and Practice. George Backrack and I authored uh, Chapter 6 of that book titled Surety Claims in Bankruptcy. Uh, This book was intended to be a resource, you know, not, not just for the surety industry, but for the bankruptcy bar and the bench. So be sure to visit the FSLC website to uh, add a copy of this new book to your library again thank you so much to everyone for joining us today and i want to wish all the mothers out there a belated uh, happy mother's day now i'm going to unmute the line the conference is now in talk mode okay we're opened up for any questions all right if we don't have any questions then we'll close things out Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.